Today on the pod, we talk to Craig Weiss, a venture capitalist, serial entrepreneur, and a published author. Craig is the managing member of the Flagstaff Ventures, a venture capital firm focused on early stage consumer products and services. He's a co-founder and CEO of the Venture Backed Retainer Club and Mouthguard Club. Craig has founded or co-founded half a dozen companies during his three and a half years as president and CEO of NJOY Inc. and Joy. And he has led the company to a $1 billion valuation. Our conversation with Craig today was fascinating because, you know, you don't know what you don't know, right? So you think that venture capitalism is evil, all they care is about money, and oftentimes that is indeed the case. doesn't matter who gets hurt by it or uh, or if it's uh, if it's not for the greater good. It's, it's a matter of making more money, period, end of story. And with Craig, is different. I call him, I think I should trademark this, <laughs> a holistic venture capitalist. And I wanted to have this conversation with him. So we talk about that. We talk about his approach and really what transformed him to be more of a, let's just say, spiritual person um, in his approach in investing and um, in his work with his firm. So today's conversation is with Craig Weiss on holistic venture capitalism. Let's go. Welcome to the Dr. Geo podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Geo where it is my intention to help you improve your prostate health and how to live better with age. Today we have Craig Weiss. You know much about him from the intro. Craig, thanks so much for being on. Um, taking, you know, I, when I get invited to a podcast or anything, um, you know, it, it's it's time that you're taking off from something else. and And it's like, you know, but obviously I do it because I want to share the wealth of information. Thank you for doing so, and thank you for taking time out to do this with me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show, Gio. It's uh, really a pleasure, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. I look forward to it as well. So we met uh, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, at a consumer health summit, and it's great for many for for many reasons. But I think that um, for me, what Michael Fishman puts together is important because. I really get to meet amazing people and you certainly were one of them. And, you know, we looked at your bio. I was like, oh, this is a venture capitalist. I don't even know what he's doing in this consumer health summit. And then we start talking and I'm thinking this is not any ordinarily VC. This is a guy that gets it, a guy that's holistic in his mindset, a guy that um, looks at venture capitalism and you, you, you correct me if I'm wrong any, at any time, looks at venture capitalism from a holistic perspective. How do we all benefit from a good investment? That was my impression. And this is why I wanted you to come on. So I appreciated that conversation. And I appreciated, again, meeting you and chatting with you. And you sent me a whole bunch of resources of documentaries that I just feel like, man, I need to get through. Can I get through this this summer? Uh, <laughs> you know, it's like on my to-do list. Great things. All great things. And books and so forth. Excellent resources. So, Craig, thanks again. Um, let's start with a very fundamental question <laughs> that I really believe a lot of our listeners probably would not know. And I can't say I know a whole lot about it. 
what's a venture capitalist? <laughs> what what uh, is it? <clears throat> well, you know, it's funny about the question is I just learned very recently in the last maybe four or five weeks, the origin story of venture mm. capital, which I did not mm. know. And, you know, I became a VC arguably three years ago and, um, and I never knew what the origins were. And so I found out and it was absolutely fascinating. So, so venture capital was invented in the mid 1800s mm. specifically for a single industry, which was the whaling industry. And the whaling industry presented this very unique set of problems or challenges, and which was that these boats would go out for years, two, mm. three years before they'd come back. And a lot of them didn't come back, right? Because it was mm. a dangerous business. Right. And, but for those that, that landed a whale and did come back, they were enormously profitable. And the enormous profitability from just those handful of boats that did return actually paid for the entire industry's you know, operation. And so, but it only worked with investors that would invest in a three plus year voyage, which was capital intensive, mm. knowing that there was this high likelihood that, that the money was gonna be wasted and the boats wouldn't return. But in the low probability where they did return with the whale, it was enormously profitable. And so, mm. and, they would give, and they would give the captain a, a share of the profits. And that was the origin of what they call carried interest, which is today how a venture capitalist is compensated, which is essentially if you, Geo, gave me, you know, I'll just use round numbers. You gave me a million dollars to invest and I, you know, and, and I may, I, I give you back, you know, five million, you know, let's say I give you, I make five million dollars for you. So I give you six million back, your original one plus five. So the way that that typically works is I, I get 20% of the profits. So you would get $4 million of profit. I would get mm -hmm. 1 million of profit. And mm -hmm. so, um, so you get, you know, 80% of the profits and typically the VC gets 20% of the profits. And then there's usually a management fee. Uh, it's usually 2%. So 2% of the million dollars or 20 grand a year is the management fee to just sort of pay the bills. And then, but the real money for, for the VC is the 20% of the profits. So it was developed in the 1800s for the whaling industry. And is that, is that, sorry to interrupt, Craig, and I, I, I may do so just because I don't want to lose track of what we're talking, the essence of what we're talking about. Um, is that the way it's still done, more or less, today? It, so things yeah. have not changed in 200 years in that regard, in terms of how it's split up? <laughs> Pretty much. You know, the, the, the percentages might change a little bit here or there, but the idea of a management fee, a percentage of the profits, and, and what, what most people don't realize about venture is statistically, and there's a lot of data out there, um, venture outperforms every other investment. It's, it's, it actually does better than real estate, than the S&P 500, than private equity. It's just the most illiquid. And that's the trade-off. So you're going to make the most amount of money, but you're going to be, you're, you're, you're going to be parted with your money for the longest period of time. And that's the reason why typically the only people who can invest in venture are either high net worth or ultra high net worth. Because mm. if you've got, you know, $20 million, you can take a million and, and part with it for five, six, seven years, not the end of the world. Most people can't be away from their money for that long a period of time. And That's so they can't really invest in venture. So, and if you're investing $20 million, you're also saying I can lose it and I have the ability to lose it if, if, if I do lose it. Is that the, the mindset? 
Yeah, it is the mindset. Now, the the thing about venture, why it's, I think, a good structure for a lot of investors is because if you invested $20 million in one company, that company can fail and you can lose the entire investment. And that happens all the time. But for example, in our first fund, um, we invested in 11 companies. So it's, it's, it's highly unlikely that all 11 are going to fail. It's almost impossible for all 11 to fail. So you have a diversified portfolio of companies. So you're, you're, you're sort of the, the floor for failure is much higher in a VC fund than if you were to invest in a single company that obviously, you know, any, any company can fail. We've seen it with large companies, whether it's, you know, the big sure. banks that have failed or Enron or WorldCom or, you know, companies like that. We're going to talk a lot about venture capitalism, but before we go ahead and do that, what is the difference between a, a venture capitalist and an angel investor? So typically, um, an angel investor is a high net worth individual who typically writes relatively small checks, whether that's 25 grand or 100 grand. You know, it's usually pretty small. Typically, an angel investor is not really writing a check much bigger than that, maybe 250K, but usually they're not writing anything like a seven-figure check. And and they're they're usually just a high net worth person who's maybe kind of connected and sees lots of deals. And mm. um and you know, they sort of sprinkle their money around in lots of different companies. Mm. Um so it's some some people derisively refer to that strategy as, you know, uh, spray and pray, <laughs> you know, you're, you're just kind of, you know, you're just sort of spraying around and hoping that something hits. Mm. Um, but for a lot of people who are entrepreneurs who have a startup, angels are really their first check. You know, it's the first person who's going to invest with them because it's either a family member or it's maybe the best friend of their dad or their, mm. you know, mom or their aunt or uncle. And so, and, and so that's, and then they can use that angel money to kind of get to the next level, to the next level, to at some point get the attention of a VC because venture capitalists tend to be much earlier stage than for example, private equity. And so private equity is much later stage. Now, what I noticed is over the last sort of 15 or 20 years, everyone's kind of moved upstream. So, um, VCs are now doing what what 15 years ago private equity was doing. So, for example, pre-revenue, a company that does not yet have revenue, um, most VCs won't invest in pre-revenue companies anymore like they did 15 or 20 years ago. Half of the companies I invested in were pre-revenue. So I actually am trying to fill that void that I see in the marketplace. Um and pre 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 revenue meaning that um, these are companies that have not made a dime yet uh, 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 and and so they have not but you, you you trust in their business model or what have you yeah so if if I think they have if they, I think they're on to something um, so I'm, I can give you an example if you like of a company yeah, that I invested sure. in pre revenue so I I met these uh, very smart guys and they told me what they were working on. And honestly, in that first 20, 30 minute conversation, I was like, yes, this mm. is it. I'm going like in my mind, I'd made the decision. I'm going to invest mm. in this. I believe in this. And here's what their pitch was. They, they, they're restaurant guys and they know lots of the top restaurants. And they basically mm. said, here's our idea that like Michelin star, top, top, top restaurants don't think that they have a revenue problem because they're sold out every night. 
but they don't realize they do actually have a revenue problem because they didn't realize that, you know, Geo and Craig just wanted to say we were going to Carbone in New York. And, you know, so we're going to just mm-hmm. like, you know, order water and split a salad, you know, mm-hmm. and so they, they didn't really make money on us. And so they go to these top restaurants and they say, look, you know what a four top generates for you at 8 p.m. on a Saturday night. On average, 500 bucks, we'll give you a grand. In exchange, you give us the inventory and we'll charge a 7.5% commission on the first three tables, 5% commission thereafter. And so what was really interesting is, so they went to the top restaurants and they locked them up and got their inventory. And now let's just say, you know, and it's an invite uh, only sort of VIP membership. And so you have this app on your phone. And so you land in Los Angeles or Miami or New so York City. Hold, so hold that thought. Yeah. So this is not – so they're not in the restaurant business. They are in the software business. Yes, exactly. And, and, and they're in the software business. And if you think about it, r- restaurants are great at making food, right? These chefs are essentially artists. They're culinary artists. They're not tech engineers. They're not coders. They're sure. not going to build their own tech stack, right? They're food right. guys, they're right. gals. And so they're always going to need some independent third-party software people to come in and do this tech stuff that they don't really know how to do. Right. And right. so these guys step in and say, listen, we've got this tech stack and this platform. We're going to deliver to you high-paying customers, right? Mm-hmm. You're not customer acquisition experts. You're food preparation experts. Right. And so... So now what happens is this is the really cool part of the of the business model that that to me was very exciting. So so now Geo you land in you know LA or Miami, mm-hmm. or I land in New York where you are and you pull up the app and you're like, "Oh my gosh, I could get into a Michelin star restaurant tonight with no reservation." Oh my gosh, you press the button and let's just say, you know, whatever that amount is for four people, you know, $1000. So you say, you know what? I'm here. I've got biz- I've got clients, or I've got business associates, or I'm here with my wife, or whatever it is. It's our anniversary. Mm. My favorite part of the business model is so when you press that button on your phone and you commit, your credit card is you know charged that amount. But when you go to the restaurant, this isn't a Ticketmaster service fee. You have a thousand dollar credit. Well, you're not going to do it all in food. You're going to get maybe a five hundred dollar bottle of wine, but mm. that's a ninety percent gross margin product for the restaurant. So everybody mm-hmm. wins. So you get value for your money. The restaurant gets more money. You might have spent a thousand anyhow, right? Like it's a celebration or you've got right. big, you know, clients or whatever, but now you get guaranteed access to, to restaurants that you would never be able to get into same day. Um, literally multiple Michelin star restaurants, same night. And then you, you get this incredible access and you're actually getting value for your money. So I, I loved the business model. And so this is pre-revenue. They didn't, uh, they, 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 they didn't, uh, ha- they didn't have a proof of concept, <clears throat> and then, but, but, but this just makes a lot of sense. It did. And they, and what, what persuaded me were, first of all, the people who were running it were serious people who were, you know, very connected in the restaurant industry, but they had also locked up some of the top restaurants in the country, not just as, as for their inventory, but as investors on their cap table. And that was to me very high signal that, that they were onto something. And there was one other aspect of the tech that I loved, which is my favorite part about Uber is just getting out of the car. You're not held hostage by the driver, you know, doing <laughs> like you are with a cab where you're trying to yeah. figure out the credit card thing and all of that. So this is the same thing. You can dine and dash. You, you've already, you, they've got your credit card. You've already prepaid. You're not, you're not held hostage by the server waiting for the check. You can leave whenever you'd like. So what if you go over a thousand dollars? So you prepaid a yeah. thousand. What happens then? 
they have your credit card on file. So yeah. it doesn't matter. You go yeah. over, it's just going to charge you the additional yeah. amount plus, right. plus the, you know, 20% for, for the cool. tip. Cool. So you said certain things. So prior to your, uh, to your, to your, where you were saying about this investment that you made, you mentioned, you gave us an idea of what an angel is. You told us what a VC is. And you said private equity is, was that historically the, the sequence um, so from angel to venture to private equity and what is private equity relative to venture uh, or yes. is it one thing or is it one now has, has we, have we evolved? No, it's definitely not one. So I, I think the way you framed it is correct. It's essentially, you know, angels are the very first typically check writers. It's usually friends and family. Um, and then the next is venture is your first institutional check and it comes from a venture capitalist mm -hmm. or a VC firm. And then as the companies mature, you get into this world of private equity and private equity, they might typically venture is, is a, is a minority investor. So I, I don't own more than 50% of any of my portfolio companies and I likely never will, right? Because it's your company, not my company. When you get into private equity, though, they often will take a controlling interest in the company or they might buy the entire company from you. Um, and it's still privately held. It's not a publicly traded company. And so these are, you know, potentially much larger checks. They might be writing a check for 20 million, 50 million, 100 million. They might be right. buying you for a billion dollars. Um, and then, and then of course, the final step in the process is if you go public or do an IPO and then, you know, you take your private company public and then anyone in the world can buy shares in it and it's traded and it's very liquid and you could buy or sell it on any given day. Is that the goal for a private equity firm to eventually go public or not necessarily? Not, not necessarily. I think, you know, I would actually say IPO is, is, is actually, you know, is, is not the most common exit for most of these companies. It's probably, um, you know, it depends on the industry. It depends on the sector. Most of the time, the exit is an acquisition. So you build this company in whatever sector and then, you know, the big 800-pound gorilla, whoever they are, you know, buys up that, you know, that, 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 you know, exciting startup that's starting to gain traction. Gotcha. So, yeah, I mean, like Apple, I think acquires like, I don't know, dozens and dozens and dozens of small companies every year. Right. Right. Really. <laughs> Eventually, it'll be five or ten companies owning everything, almost right. Um, I, I I saw that Amazon bought one medical, a medical institution, uh, and so then now providing medical services, right? Um, true. That's a different uh, story for a different day. So, you have these guys. Uh, the let's going back to the software guys with the restaurant uh, business, and. <laughs> I'm going to sound like I have no idea how the VC world works because I don't, I have no idea what the, what that world looks like. Um, you know, if I see a guy coming in with a black turtleneck or something, I'm like, I'm going to invest in this guy. And I don't even know, right. I don't even know, like you said, what in 30 minutes I already knew. Does the look make a difference? I'm, I'm kind of half joking, you know. Does the look like the less like I would be a horrible if I go to you right now with a tie and a and a shirt and a vest? You're like, oh no, I'm not. I'm not investing with this. Particularly software. This guy has knows knows nothing. Does that make a difference as well in this day and age? You know, for me, it doesn't. Um, I'm. I will say this, and we talked a little bit about this when we met. Um, you know, I've become, I, I sort of embarked on a, a pretty serious, you know, spiritual journey starting about two years ago. Yeah. And, 
And today, I'm much more attuned to energy than I was in, in you know, earlier in my life. So part of why you and I connected is we just, you know, I think our energy was very compatible and we yeah. combined, you know, with each other. And sure. it's not that I have to invest in people who I think will be my friend and that, you know, we can hang out and we're going to be buddies, but I do need to see a certain um, energy frequency, for lack of a better term, that it just got to light up certain areas of, of my brain that, okay, this person is passionate. Um, they love what they're doing. Um, they seem smart and they're a subject matter expert in their area. Um, they are highly motivated to win for whatever reason. They mm -hmm. really like failure is not an option for them. And, and so, and then the, the sort of the fourth thing that I look for or fourth or fifth, I would say is, um, they they have to be a good person, you know. In, in Yiddish, they say a mensch, you know. Um, sure, they, they've got sure. to be a good person. I I won't invest in someone that I I genuinely don't like. I won't. I don't care how good their idea is. Um, so I think they, they've got to be a good person, or, or maybe just say they they need to deserve the money, <laughs> like um, for for lack of a better term. You would have lost out. Um, you know, I read the biography of Steve Jobs. I think you would have lost out on that one because I don't think he was a mensch necessarily I, uh, no. uh, based on information we read. But clearly, really smart and losing was not an option, but probably you, you would have not, you know, you would have not connected on a spiritual level with such a guy. Correct. And, and, and that's the thing I, I you know, my style is my style. It's not, I'm not saying that it's the best style or that it's the one that's going to be optimized because you're right. There are those people, look, I'll use Uber as an example. Like I, I wouldn't have invested in Travis because, yeah. you know, you know, he's got this sort of reputation. And so, and, and it's not because these people don't know how to make money. Often they do know how to make money, yeah. but I, I don't want to make, I, I, part of it is I feel like there's a certain type of way to make money. And, and I guess that this is another aspect that I think is important. Yeah, let's go is, into that. Yeah. I, I think in this world, there are two, we all have to make money to support ourselves unless we were you know, born as trust fund babies. So we all need to make money. Well, I feel like there's fundamentally two different ways to make money in this world. The, the way that I feel comfortable making money is I would like to provide value and receive money in exchange for that value. That's to me the right way to do it. There's another way to make money, which we've all known these people. And it's just, how do I get the money that's in Geo's pocket into my pocket as fast and efficiently as possible? And I don't really care how, and I don't really care if he's getting value or not. And, and so, you know, you, you, there's little tells you can, you can hear when someone's like, it's awesome. My business model is beautiful. Like if they say it's beautiful, it's probably horrible, right? Like <laughs> the credit card's getting zinged every month. They don't even know it. It's awesome. You know, it's like, yeah, that's not the business I want to be invested in because right. if you're not providing value, you don't deserve the money, yeah. uh, in my opinion. Yep. Yep. Fascinating. Craig, what happened two years ago? Why did you go in through? And so who was Craig? prior to two years ago and what was his what was his investment approach then and who is and and who is Craig now and what did he do to be the person he is today to probably invest differently assuming that that's exactly what happened 
Well, the good news is my spiritual journey began right as I became a venture capitalist, as I launched my own fund. So mm. a lot of what we're talking about today, I may not have been able to articulate it two years ago, mm. but it was infused into my investing strategy in one way or another. Um, I would say the spiritual journey um, began for me two years ago uh, with a medicine journey. And what what was so helpful to me about that is I think... Now, when I look at the world and I have children and, you know, I, I think about them, what How I want for kids, them. Craig? I've got a daughter who's turning 14 uh, in a month and a son who's 16. Excellent. Um, so, perfect perfect yeah. time to yeah. go through this. And, yeah. And when, yeah, when I look at them, I think to myself, what I really want for them is more than – and this is really what I want for every human being on the planet mm-hmm. – is to to know themselves, right? To 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 – you know, like I said to my daughter, I just we just dropped her off at at camp, and I said the last words I said to her was, "I said, be safe and be you, right?" Because it. That, that's it. I I don't I want my children to try to be someone else. I don't want them yep. to try to be someone that they're not. And so, I I had the fortunate experience of getting to know myself much much better, and. And I think that's the goal for life for all of us is to, is to, you know, know thyself, right? To get to know ourselves because once you know who you really are, it's easy to stay on the path towards your North Star. A hundred percent. Because you know the, where that the, is. The, the better the question is, why does it take so darn long for us? So what you're trying to do and actually what I just try to do with my daughter who just graduated from, uh, from high school as she's going through her next journey of what's next and college and things of the sort. And what you did with your daughter says, just be you with my daughter. And of course, every parent asks, what, you know, Oh, what is she going to major in? What is she going to do? And I was like, guys, that either I'm the crazy one. And it could be by the way, because I never asked that question. And all these very intelligent academic people ask me the same question. So what is she going to take up? What is she, she going to study? It's like, guys, that doesn't matter. You're right. <laughs> that actually doesn't matter. A, almost everyone changes their mind two to three times. B, even worse, is the person that doesn't change their mind, that just goes straight through, and then they reach their goal, and they're not happy because that's not really what they want to do. Exactly right. So for the next so, four years, my conversation with Mia was, hey, it's all about learning who you are. Exactly so you, right. you, you will be 21, 22, 25, and you know what? The world won't rattle you because you know who you are at your core. And you'll exactly be stable right. emotionally, and you'll be very successful, happy, and happy. Is that, is that, the, is that sort of <clears throat> what you're trying to accomplish with you? So we're helping them figure this out. Here we are. I'm 50. I'm like, yeah, I just figured this out. I, I, I feel like I'm really comfortable with who I am, you know, maybe within the last, I don't know, six, seven years. It took exactly. me a darn long time. And so what, what I think we're trying to accomplish to, to help our kids accomplish that uh, sooner than we did. Well, absolutely. And I think what I didn't realize until as I've, you know, I was a philosophy major in college. So I I guess I've always been a a seeker to some extent or another. And what I've learned and what I, the way I now see the world is the reason why this has become a big issue um, is because society, and we we all live in society, we don't live in a cave on an island, you know, by ourselves. Most of us. You live in, 
Yeah, most of us. And so we live in this society. And I've come to this realization that the, that the society that we live in is a liar, right? Society mm. lies. And it, mm. and it lies to us every single day. Geo, mm. you'll be happy if you, you know, if you purchase yes. this and yes, if you write right, and if you or if you go on a vacation to this place and if you wear this swimsuit or if you buy this shirt or if you drive this car. Right. And we we know you and I know it's a lie. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That is actually not how you're going to be happy. Right. And and essentially the lie that society tells you is everything is a comparison. And we both know that comparison is the, the most direct route to misery and depression and unhappiness. Mm -hmm. And so we, we grow up, we're all in this boat together. We're all in this society where we're getting inundated all day, every day with this, you know, comparison and lie. You'll be happy if you'll be happy when. And, and so, but if you, if you don't know who you are, you're, you're just sort of floating around in the ether, just sort of bouncing from, oh, I, I'm going to try this new diet and I'm going to buy this new car and I'm going to, you yeah. know, and you don't really, you're just sort of scattered. So the only and, way and to feel and feel like crap while you're scattered and trying to figure it out, this endless trying to figure it out uh, scenario, and you constantly feel like you're not good enough. Social media with our daughters, totally. you're constantly not good enough. So, yeah. Yeah, it's a big issue. And it's a big issue. And so I've, I've realized that the only way to navigate this sort of storm of reality is you have to know your North Star. And, mm -hmm. and, and I meet people all the time. We talked about this earlier that, you know, they're successful. They're a doctor. They're in their mid 50s. Mm -hmm. And I've had these conversations with people and they're like, I never wanted to be a doctor. You know, my parents wanted me to be a doctor All and the they're time. like living someone else's life and the they're time. miserable. Yeah. And, and so it, when I meet those people, it, I'm like so sad yep. because, and look, but for the grace of God, go <laughs> I'm, I, I'm I was sad for their patients too. I, imagine you go into a doctor that's disgruntled and unhappy with his profession. Jeez. You know, well, it, it, <laughs> And, you know, it's funny you say that, right? We have all met those people on yeah. both ends of the spectrum. You meet the doctor or the lawyer or whoever who clearly is not living their purpose and they're miserable and unhappy and you can feel that. But then the opposite also happens. You know, you might walk into, you know, I don't know, like like uh, one of those arts and crafts stores like, you know, Michael's or whatever. And there's just, you know, some older lady who loves crafts 100%. and she is living her best life. She's in yeah. Disneyland, right? She is in the happiest place on earth for her. And you see it when you ask her questions or whatever. And she's just like, oh, let me take you down to this aisle. And have you thought about, you know, the balsa wood or whatever? And you're like, wow, this is person is exactly where they're supposed to be. They are there. This is what they should be doing with their life. I love it. I love it. I think, and 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 that is tightly connected with with health, uh, as we know, because we're just living on our purpose. We're living on our terms, um, not our parents or whoever else, society, and things of the sort. I love it, Craig. A little bit more. W what happened? What did you do? You could f be share as much as you as you want. What did you do? What was your journey like? Obviously, I know this could be a three hour conversation. We don't have that much, but give us an idea in case somebody's listening and says. Oh man, maybe that's exactly what I need. And maybe, you know, more people can do something similar if not exactly what you did. So, I think there are, there's no so first of all, I think um there's no one path. So, yeah. 
it, whenever I meet people who who are prescriptive, like this is what you should do, it's like, come on, like you might have worked for you, great, that's awesome, but that doesn't make it universal or that it's going to work for everyone. So I think everyone needs to discover, you know, the the right tools or the right you know approach to uh, to do what I think we all need to do, which is to discover our truth. And to discover our our purpose, and so yeah. even like the way I feel, to be honest, today about about my truth is it's not truth; it's just my truth, right? Because I, who mm-hmm. am I to judge you, Geo, for your views and your truth, even if it's different than mine? Like I I don't know that my truth is more true than your truth, and so right. I think so. And and look, unfortunately, I think this is often missing from. Mm our public discourse like mm. to you know for example i i i rarely hear people like on the pro life pro choice side of the debate sort of talk about it in these terms like hey i'm fill in the blank pro choice pro life um these this is my truth this is what i believe but i respect and understand that not everyone agrees with me and they don't feel the way i feel and that's okay that's their truth like no one really says that right they just right, feel exactly. like they are the the holder of the truth and so mm-hmm. Um, so I would say for me, what was helpful, some people can find their truth through meditation. It's, it's incredibly powerful tool for a lot of people. Some people can get there with yoga. Some people can go on retreats to do, you know, uh, you know, to an ashram in India, you know, there's, they can do, do silent retreats. There's, they can do a darkness retreat. There's lots of different paths to like, put yourself in a position to have a conversation with your true self. Um, for me, the path that Thank you for starting through- off that way. Um, very interested in what you did. But no, that's very important because, you know, I'm in this, um, I'm, uh, you know, I'm a physician. I help people. And I, I do. So one of the questions when um, Ben Greenfield said all these supplements that he takes, he said, that's a lot of supplements. That's a lot of pills. I don't, I'm not a pill taker. I am a prescriber of pills and sometimes it's a lot. And I have to remind myself of that, what you just said to be personalized. Why? Well, I take 25 pills twice a day. No problem. That doesn't mean that you will. That doesn't mean that that's your path. That doesn't mean I need to have at least three methods of getting you to where you want to be from a prostate perspective, urological wellness perspective, not just one way. And I always remind myself of that very fundamental message, which I think is so important. So thank you for starting off with that. All right. What did you do, Craig? Yeah. What did Craig so what I, do? Yeah. So what I did was I, one of my close friends um, had embarked on his own journey and mm. spent uh, uh, maybe six or 12 months essentially traveling the world, going to, you know, the jungles of Peru and doing ayahuasca, mm. and, you know, mm. going all over the place, doing plant-based medicine in mm. all sorts of different places on the planet. And uh, I'm in a CEO group with him and he came back to my forum of CEOs and he said, you're not going to believe it, but the number one place on the planet that I have discovered is two hours from where we're sitting, you know, here, uh, you know, in Arizona, uh, where I live. And he describes this experience with plant-based medicine and this place that essentially follows this, the Johns Hopkins protocols for, mm. you know, all of these um, plant-based medicines that, you know, well, so one of them is already uh, FDA approved, which is ketamine, which is, right. in, you know, being prescribed essentially off-label now uh, because it's a mm-hmm. disassociative. 
And then there's other plant-based medicines that are in phase three clinical trials. Some of them have just gotten approved in Australia that That's will right. get approved, you know, here in the United States in the next, you know, year or two. And so, um, so he describes this experience and he, he said a couple of things that were extraordinarily powerful. Mm. Um, one of the things that he said that I thought was a beautiful framing was he said, you are not your ego, but your ego thinks that he's you. And wow. so he says, so here's what happens on the medicine for five hours. You're going to take that ego and you're going to lock him in a cage over there. And for five hours, you're going to have for the first time in your life, a conversation with the real you. And at oh. the end of those five hours, you're going to unlock the cage and let the ego back out. But for the rest of your life, there will be no more confusion as to who's really in charge. Wow. One session. One session. And my five-hour medicine journey was the far and away the most profound five hours of my life. Because he's right. I was able to get mm. to know myself in a way that I, and I'm turning 50 next month in a way that I hadn't known myself in my whole life up until this point. So, um, and I, I think that relationship with yourself mm. is the most important relationship we have on this planet. Mm. And most of us, I, I tell you, and I, I know I'm sure you feel the same way. I meet people all the time mm. and I walk away from a meeting and I, and I say to myself, they have no idea who they are. Mm, mm, mm. No, 100%, 100%. Not only they have no idea who they are. Look, I have other than uh, my a clinical work at NYU and so forth. You know, I, I have side business things with uh, nutritional, nutraceutical supplements and other things. And in the past, I've, uh, I've been in partnerships. And I have, um, and look, <laughs> I always say there's a good chance that it, I have no idea what I'm doing or what I'm talking about as it relates to businesses and partnerships. So I think I've been decently successful, but you know, it's up to the eye of the beholder. Um, if I feel and or I sense that eh, eh, not a good person, not a good person, I'm not doing it. No, but Gio, you don't understand this person, you know, created $20 million businesses and he, he'll he, not doing it. Exactly I'm not right. doing it. And um, I, I, I don't know. And that's been since they, well, I got, did get burned once, uh, but, uh, and I, the signs were there. I just ignored them actually. Right. If we're paying attention, if we, if we are in tuned with ourselves, uh, the signs are there uh, and, and you can, you know, you can pay attention to, it. I just ignored them. Um, that, so that happened once, but, um, but you know, all in all, uh, I, I think that's a, important component with uh, who I work with, right? And, and what I decide to do in terms of partnerships. Um, very powerful. Thanks for sharing that. So who are you before? So were you the typical CEO guy, high net worth, um, very much into his ego kind of person prior to that experience? So, so fortunately, no. Um, I, I had a very unusual childhood. I've, I've actually... In, in my almost 50 years on this planet, I've, I've never met another person who has described a childhood that's remotely similar to mine. <laughs> so, mm, um, mm. so one of the unique aspects of my childhood was, uh, it created a dynamic <laughs> that resulted in me not having not a lot of problems with having a big ego. So mm, what mm. happened was, uh, my parents were married for 50 years. 
Um, my mother gave birth to seven children across mm. the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Mm, and so wow. she was she was a federal judge for 25 years. I think she was the only female federal judge in the United States with seven children. Wow. And, and so at the time, and so, but the first five kids were born in five years and three months, no twins. And then eight years later, me. And then eight years later, my little brother. So I was essentially like this only child with yeah. six siblings. Yeah. And, but five of my siblings were eight to 13 years older than me. And so by the time I was aware, like, you know, when I was maybe, you know, six, seven, eight years old, you know, most humans have one or two adults in their family. They're called parents. I had seven. So right. I had my two parents and my five older siblings who all had their own opinions and perspectives uh, and moods. But when I like looked up at my five older siblings, I had a sister who was the first person in the 150 year history for college to triple major. And then she got a PhD from Yale. And then I, she's a professor and you know, was the chair of her department at her university. Mm. I have another sister who, you know, was a straight A student and got a PhD in clinical psychology. I have a brother who was number two in his law school class. And then he got a master's in international law from Georgetown. He was number one out of 150 people there. And then he got a master's in biotechnology from Johns Hopkins. And then I had two brothers who were both IP attorneys and were also professional athletes and had professional tennis players Jeez. for a year each. So I, I think that would, a- I think that would break me. I think that would be, <laughs> I think that's like, I cannot, you know, that's way, I, you know, I think, that, I think that would be, I don't think that would be, it's, it could go either way. Well, I, this is what I have to live up to. This is the way it is, or there's no way I can do that. You know, I'm going the opposite way. I'm, I need more attention to me. I'm going to start, I don't know, taking crack or something. <laughs> yeah, no, there's no question. So it, I didn't have an ego growing up because I had no business having an ego. I, I had these siblings who were all yeah, superstars. Exactly. So, you know, I never thought that I was the smartest. I knew for a fact I was not, you know, (laughs) and so I knew I wasn't the best athlete. Like I knew I wasn't the hardest worker. I, I, you know, I knew I wasn't the best looking like, you know, in some cases, some of these siblings had all of that. They were smarter. They were faster. They were better looking. They, you know, they were the whole package. So, so for me, I never had that issue, you know, growing up, um, with it, with a big ego. Um, and so. Uh, and, and, and we had a fun family. Uh, my, my oldest brother, Jeff, who, who's now working with me, which is really exciting. We've worked together across three different companies now. Um, he's, he's brilliant and has a, a spectacular sense of humor. So I was once talking to him about this issue of ego and I was complaining to him about someone that I thought had a big ego. And I said, I can't believe this guy has such a big ego. He hasn't accomplished half of what you, Jeff, have accomplished in your life. And my brother, without any hesitation, says, well, Craig, as you know, I try to be the most humble person in the world. <laughs> <laughs> That's lovely. Yeah. Is that the brother that I met at CHS? Yes, it is. Yeah, it is. Great, great guy. <laughs> Look, I would say this. Um, I would say that um, your parents had something to do with all of that. Um, I would say that when you did your journey two years ago, you didn't start from zero. Uh, you, you didn't start from zero. You're already a, a good guy B, you know, know what success looks like. Yeah. You're already, you were pretty comfortable in your skin at that point. And then boom, this took you to the next level. So, uh, you know, and, and it goes to, you know, I'm going to, I have a, a father's day episode coming up where I just talk about my approaches and views on what I call fathering. 
and and I think that I think that plays uh, that plays a significant role. The job of a parent, which you know, another story for a different day. So I think that they, your parents and your siblings, did a great job raising you. <laughs> so is Jeff uh, uh, the younger one or older? Jeff, the one you met's the older one. So he yeah. uh, is he's eleven years older than me. So tell him you did. He did a good job as well. <laughs> and, uh, crazy. But no, uh, you know, great, great parents, great, great parents. I can tell. Um, so now you've gone through that and here you are this person, I, you know, to me, you're like a holistic venture capitalist, right? Um, don't, don't make that your company's name now. I mean, that's my idea. <laughs> you get holistic, the trademark. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, how do you, so how, so somebody comes in with an idea, great. You know, how do you connect? How do you learn that, you know, that, um, that it, it will, you know, when you say holistic, right, the idea is, is not only about me, is about the benefit of everyone. Yeah, me too. And we do, you know, we do need to make money. This is a company, right? So how do you navigate through that with, yep, this is a company, we do need to make money, we do need, we do need to make profits. Same time, how does it benefit the world how do you navigate through that what is it that you do how do you connect with them at a even at a spiritual level if you do at all what's that process like so i'll say i'll start with the the end and go back to the beginning i i i every person that i invest in knows that i fundamentally care about about them as a human being more than i care about making money from them amazing so and and so because they know that a couple of really cool things happen. Um, one is they call me with bad news. Um, most entrepreneurs are terrified to tell yeah. their investors about things that are going wrong because they don't trust them with that information to not in some way use it against them. So my founders call me with bad news because they know I'm not going to freak out and I can't help them if I don't know what they're struggling with. So, so part of it is establishing that trust and it, it has to be authentic, right? Everyone can, you know, everyone's got a good BS detector, right? So they know whether you're being genuine or not. And so from, from my perspective, it, it starts with that. In terms of the type of businesses, I'll go back to what I said before. They have to be in the business of providing value. So if I get the sense that they're trying to make money by cutting corners or by doing something that, you know, might be profitable, but isn't really serving their customers in, in, in the right way, that's not the right way to make money. And so I'm not, so for example, <laughs> I, I realized this and I've been thinking about it a lot. You know, what is my investing philosophy? And so one of the things I've learned and realized is I'm not a Puritan. I'm not, you know, judgmental about industries. For so, for example, one of one of the companies we invested in in Fund One, uh, Fleet Street, uh, sells French fries, right? So mm. I'm not sitting there going, "Well, gosh, you know, French fries are bad and they cause people to be fat, right?" Like we've all mm. had delicious French fries and they're delicious, and so yeah. um, it's it's incumbent upon all of us, like. You could say, well, French fries are bad. Well, do you want to live in a society where you're not allowed to have alcohol, sugar, caffeine, like all of these things? No, you don't want to live in Excellent. that society. We Excellent want to have point. free choice. Yeah. Right. Excellent point. We want to have free choice. And so 
but I wouldn't inve have invested in a French fry company that was cutting corners or, or trying to not provide like they're they are they have made the best French fry in the world. They're literally in like the top 150 sort of restaurants in the United States with their amazing French fry. And I'm like, but but they treat their customers well. They treat their vendors well. They treat their manufacturing partners well, like because they're good people, they're good humans. And so that's at the end of the day, if, if you infuse positive energy, if you are a, a, a good person, you're going to infuse this positive energy into every aspect of your business. And that's going to you know, make its way out to your customers as well. Man, I love it. Uh, Craig, are, are you an anomaly? And is your firm an anomaly in this regard? I, I just don't hear this, right? So when it's so an angel is my understanding, an angel investor will invest on a cause on a passion that the founder of a company has uh, uh, uh things like this. so of course it could be a family member, but it could also be just a friend or, or somebody that's interested in that cause. My VCs are interested in the bottom line, not this whole notion of if, if the founder of the company is a good person, providing value, bottom line numbers, that's it. I just don't, I don't live in this world. So I'm asking, you know, a serious question is like, do you know of other VC firms that function this way? Not really. Um, I think you're correct. I think, unfortunately, the overwhelming majority of um, of these institutional investors don't care about people and they just mm. care about money and profits, unfortunately. Um, I, I certainly you know, would never say we're the only ones. I'm sure there's other good people out there. Mm. Um, but I think, unfortunately... The, the, you know, when I launched my fund two years ago, it was after I went out to try to raise money and I got introduced to 10 VCs. And, you know, my joke is I forgot how much I hated VCs. Um, <laughs> you know, I had these 10 conversations and every cliche was true. 10 young, dumb white guys who had never run a business in their life, who thought mm -hmm. that the world runs like an Excel spreadsheet mm -hmm. and they thought they were smart because they were managing a lot of money. And I was complaining to a good friend of mine. I go, I think these guys are all idiots. And he said, well, if you think they're all idiots, why don't you do it yourself? Mm. And, and so I, I think, unfortunately, a lot of VCs have a, have a well-earned crappy reputation. Um, mm. And so, and look, I, I've been a CEO. I've been an operator. I've been on the receiving end of not so great relationships with people who, who, who wrote checks and gave me money who were my investors. Mm. And I've, I've always had this view. It doesn't have to be this way. Um, mm. And, and so I, I set out to do it what I think is, you know, the right way to do it the way I would, you know, it's the golden rule. How, how would I want to be treated? You know, mm. and that's how I'm trying to treat other people. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. I, I, you know, I, I, you know, you're kind of talking my language. Um, I view the world holistically, not only health, um, you know, uh, in my world, you know, people come with a pelvic problem, whether it's their prostate or their penis. And okay, we'll start there. But let's start extending outside of that area, then to see how things are actually interrelated. And there's, you know, it's the intersection of the different system, biological systems. And that's, in my opinion, what produces the best health results and not just here's the drug or the herb, by the way, sometimes people practice herbal medicine, herbal conventional medicine as well. You know, I use many herbal products and I even use med uh, uh, medicinals and pharmaceuticals as well when necessary. But the bottom line is in terms of 
cure or healing or getting the the outcome that you're really looking for, you have to look at things holistically. And it's amazing to hear you, uh, uh, you know, talk about you know, <laughs> really a holistic way of 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 VCing another my term of VCing. Uh, you know, if you notice, I make everything a verb: fathering, VCing. You know, I make I, love I, make, it. I make angeling. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> That's great. Craig, I think um, we're done, my friend. Um, I can't, again, thank you so much. I think this is, I don't think this is outside of the goal of the Dr. Geo podcast because it has to do with health. And I know I have a lot of listeners that are venture capitalists or will become and have a lot of uh, listeners from all aspects of life. And I think this can really help um, people do better and, and kind of manage your ego and do things. I think that's the goal It's like, all right, we all have an ego. Let's, let's kind of know that and manage that and put that aside for five hours like you did or something like that. Um, and, and see who we really are as people. And I think at the end, actually almost everyone is a good person. They just don't know. They had a lot of difficult times in life and so many aspects, you know, uh, you, I don't know if you know this, I grew up in the South Bronx, to Cuban parents. So that does something to you, right? In terms of who you think you are. And um, you would not really know me uh, for like 25 years ago, even through college. In, in college, I had a little bit of a hoodlum mentality a little bit and still like freshman year getting into fights and things until sophomore year, like, okay, I need to, be, I want to be a doctor. And that's it. I just changed my trajectory and my whole approach. And I started reading all sorts of things and got, got me into the world that I live now. And I live in a great, I live a great life and with a great family. So these kind of, these are the things that kind of change you. And as you said, is what works for you. So you shared so much, Craig. Thank you so much. Um, how can people connect with you or anything related to you? Um, and, I, and I'll put it on the show notes as well. Sure. Um, you know, my, my website's flagstaffventures.com. Um, and, and people can email me certainly at Craig at flagstaffventures.com. And, you know, I, I'll just end with saying, you know, I, I totally agree with the way you're looking at the world and I feel the same way. So when I use the word medicine now, for me, it is holistic. This conversation mm. is medicine for me. Mm. The, the books that I read are medicine, the documentaries mm. that I watch, you know, so it's all medicine to mm. me now um, in terms of just, you know, giving me nourishment for my soul. I love it, man. I love it. We'll stay in touch. Uh, uh, hopefully we'll see you soon. If not, uh, you know, we don't have to wait a year for the next CHS. See you soon. <laughs> and um, absolutely. thanks again, brother. I really appreciate you. My, my pleasure. Thanks so much, Gio. I really appreciate it. Take care. Our next sponsor partner has a product I use literally every day. I'm talking about AG1. You know, I've been using green powders mixed in drinks for a long time. It has not always been a great experience, right? The powder clumps up a little bit. It tastes horrible. But you know what? You chug it anyway because it's good for you. AG1 changed the game. With In AG1, you have... 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day the right way. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, and energy to help you recover and focus and help you age successfully. To make it easy, 
AG1 is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Dr. Geo podcast. You can watch all episodes of this podcast and much more by subscribing to my YouTube channel on youtube.com forward slash Geo Espinoza ND. If you love what you heard today, you can help by leaving a five-star review of the podcast on Apple and Spotify, as each review helps us reach more men who are serious about improving their urological health and how to function better with age. And for the latest research and actionable takeaways in the world of men's health and integrative urology, sign up for my newsletter at drgeo.com. I'll see you next time. And now for a brief disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and we're not forming a doctor-patient relationship through this medium. The use of the information and all links associated with this podcast is at the listener's risk and is not to replace medical advice from a physician or a healthcare practitioner. Lastly, Thoughts and opinions related to this podcast are my own and may not reflect the views of any institution or organization I'm associated with.